Good morning, Simone. Good morning, Mr. Taransky. Simone, a star is digitized. Do you know what this means? We have stepped into a new dimension. Our ability to manufacture fraud now exceeds our ability to detect it. I am the death of Rio. Death of Rio. Death of Rio. The weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here, not here, none of my regular co-hosts are here, <laughs> um, and they were all busy, or actually busy or got sick. Katya was supposed to be here, but she's not feeling well, so feel better, Katya. And... In order to have you know, a semi-regular voice, I invited my wife, Stephanie, to be here. And I'm sure she's happy to be here. How's it going, Steph? Doing well. <laughs> Doing okay. Still awake. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie graciously stepped in at the last minute to co-host the show with me. So thanks. And um, so how have you been? What have you been up to? It's uh, it's November now. It's late. Yes, it's, it's late November. The year is quickly going by. Yeah. I have been writing another second grant proposal actually on augmented reality. So it's kind of related to what we're talking about, coincidentally. Wonderful segue. Perfect. See, you're a natural at this. Okay. <laughs> so today's topic, and I, I was looking for something. This is something I thought was interesting myself. I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about digital performances. And by what, what I mean by digital performances, I was thinking about stuff like, like Andy Serkis plays Gollum and he plays Caesar the Ape and Planet of the Apes. And he's doing a green screen motion capture performance that is being translated. And then I thought about things like, you know, there's other characters, um, Rocket Raccoon in the Avengers movies, completely a digital performance. Um, and then I thought about, well, what about Peter Cushing, who stars, you know, Peter Cushing, who played Grand Moff Tarkin in, in the Star Wars um, series, died. And then they made a movie called Rogue One a couple of years ago, which he's which he's in. But somebody else did the acting and they just digitally recreated Peter Cushing around him. And then they do stuff like they digitally de-aged Samuel Jackson in the Captain Marvel movie or Carrie Fisher also in Rogue One. So we've got this whole thing, new technology. And then you've got the weird, you know, questionable um, uses like deep fakes in por you know, pornography. And I want to get into all of that. But before we do, I wanted to introduce, you know, a couple of guests who I think have um, 
yeah, they should have pretty interesting uh, takes on this. So returning to the show, we have, well, it's been a while. So uh, Marone, Marone Langsner, who's a friend of mine, went to college with me. And you are, Marone, you're you're a dramatist, I would say. Dramaturge, drama, dramatist. I'm a playwright and theater scholar and fight choreographer. <laughs> and one of my research areas is the development and dissemination of performance technique, especially physical technique. And I also have an interest in puppetry. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're talking about could be broadly termed as puppetry as well. I think so. Absolutely. And before we get into that, I guess now's a good time to introduce the other guest returning to the show, Michael Chambers. Hey, Mike. Oh, oh, hey, oh, hey, sorry. <laughs> wow. Uh, you, looks terrible, no, you, Mav. The place looks terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh why do i invite you back on the show all the time <laughs> i don't know why do i like coming <laughs> mike you've got you've got a particular interest in this sort of topic as well um which is why i invited you because i was at a talk where you sort of talked about this a little bit i do thank you very much mav yeah i'm a professor of dramatic literature uh out here at the university of california santa cruz and um I was previously in Pittsburgh at the at uh, Carnegie Mellon University School of Drama. I'm also a dramaturg, so um, I didn't know that you did that, Marin. That's cool. Um, and uh, my most recent research has been about um, the the implications and integrations, collisions and collusions of digital technology, social media, robotics, and so on and so forth on performance history. So I was in Pittsburgh. Just a couple months ago. Was it a month ago? A little more than a month yeah, ago. Uh, it, it was like at this point, because we are totally recording this the day people are listening to it and not like a month in the, a month ago in the past. That's right. It was totally almost three months ago. Yeah, it was almost three months ago now. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a November we had, right? My gosh, you guys. Whoever thought that what happened on November 20th would have happened? Nobody could have predicted uh, that. It probably is about November 20th right now, but yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> Time travel in podcast, it's a whole thing. It's scary. I try not to think about it because it makes my head hurt. Well, it's actually funny that you bring that up, Mav, because when I was doing this research, I mean, I'm a historian and I'm a theater historian uh, by training. And so doing research on online culture, um, online cultural products and social interactions was quite astonishing because the Internet uh, digital technology, I should say, um, generates a completely new set of rules about how time and space work. Mm-hmm. Right? And um, so I had to change my own historiographic techniques in order to accommodate that. It was quite, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Disorienting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Steph, I guess you, I should, you should tell people a little bit about what you do because you're, I mean, you're a psychologist, so a little different. You're not a dramaturge, but what are you using augmented reality for? Oh, roughly? well, actually, I'm not personally using it. We are actually working with another group at my school who does use it, and we're hoping to integrate it into the tutoring system that we have that doesn't use it to make really basic um, science concepts like electric forces between, you know, between atoms and things like that more interesting to students because these are very important things for them to understand. And so I found that if they just kind of read about it or, you know, even see pictures or videos, it's not so interesting. So hoping to improve the science literacy of the populace of this country is the ultimate goal, really. So you think people, you think learning is important. Yes, learning is fundamental. Uh, You know, the the other three of us, we're all um, uh, uh, scholars of what my grandmother would call schmageggy, 
right? <laughs> you are, which sounds like something real. There's a brain. Mm, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, but anyway, so I went, so I was thinking about originally. I started thinking about this with just you know things like digital actors. I was looking at stuff like um like the behind the scenes footage of the a recent Avengers movie, and a lot of the set is digitally created, right? They didn't build all of space. They just you know people stand in front of a green screen and computers lay all that in. And I thought, okay, well, that's you know nobody has a problem with that. In fact, we give people awards for building those, right? But then I started thinking about people like Circus, who, you know, there when he played Caesar and when he played Gollum, you know, the geeks were like, hey, he should win the Oscar. And I was like, eh, he probably shouldn't. You only think that because because um, nobody saw the artist, but I did. And Jean Dujardin was amazing at it. The movie, I don't think, was as good as people thought it would be and probably shouldn't have won Best Picture. It's a whole different conversation. But um, but the people who thought that Circus was the best actor that year probably didn't see the artist. They probably didn't see the Descendants, the other things that were nominated. And those, you know, but one day Circus or somebody like him is going to put in an amazing performance that is Oscar worthy. And should they be, should they get the Oscar if the, if the performance is digitally enhanced? And I'm, I'll I'll go first and say, I personally think probably because I believe that Daniel Day Lewis deserved an Oscar for playing Lincoln. But a lot of that had to do with the makeup department and the wardrobe department. Like if he, if he was wearing jeans and had a super cut haircut, he was not going to win that award. Well, I mean, theater or film is always going to be some form of collaboration. And when we think about a prop or a costume or a set augmenting a performance, that's something that the actor's engaging with directly. Whereas with these digital performances, the, the, the collaboration is more indirect or is currently like when you see these guys on the green screen and they're wearing the suits made out out of bulbs and they have some idea Mm -hmm. what they're doing, but how it's going to be completed at a terminal by the character designer is going to be a completely different situation that the actor has less input into. So what we might see is not so much, you know, you know, Oscar for best man, Oscar for best woman, uh, Oscars having the gender labels removed, but will we have Oscar for best collaborative acting because it's going to character, character development plus the actual Mm -hmm. actor's craft. Since you bring it up in that particular context, Marin, which I think is, is, is wise, you know, uh, what is the difference uh, between an actor who dresses up like Lincoln and has a wonderful costume designer? Uh, you know, actors are trained to work with costumes and, and to create the overall semiotic matrix of, of, uh, of performance, right? Which involves set and costumes and, and, and actor, other actors, lighting, all these things go into the overall effect, right? Not one is, one is not separable from any of the others. So, you know, to, to look at, um, like for instance, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, his role as Smaug, uh, which I thought was wonderful. I mean, he is such a good actor, by the way. I love him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a little over the top, but you're playing a red dragon. So, you know, of course you were a little over the top, but I mean, you know, what is, what's the difference between that and him wearing a costume, right? Uh, like him doing Frankenstein, uh, mm-hmm. at the national theater in 2011, you know, he had a weird costume on and that made him partially Frankenstein, you know? I think it's actually a tactile difference because if you're wearing the suit made out of the, the bulk points that is against the green screen, what you're engaging in is something you can't actually feel. 
Whereas the costumes, and you know, the costumes are full of trickery as well. I know that half the time, you know, the swords are aluminum or sometimes they're balsa wood. So it's not going to feel like steel and you're acting like it's steel. The costume is not going to be made out of historically accurate materials because why would you ever do that to an actor? (laughs) Something that you're going to be able to physically Mm -hmm. engage with. And it becomes a different sense of altered reality or different sense, a a different magical if, if we're going to bring Stanislavski into it or how the, like a different exercise of the imagination to engage with a green screen than to engage with a physical object or a physical set. And we may see differences in training around this, but I think we're at a place now. And I want to question in there and because here's where I think it's weird because if you're, I, I, you know, both of you clearly are slightly different opposite sides of the coin, both trained actors. But here would be my question for both of you. Yes, I would agree, particularly with what Mike said, which is, you know, you, you are or no, actually particularly with what Marone said first, which is you are it's a collaborative effort. The acting is an, a collaboration between the director, the actor, the writer of the script. It's not like the actor came up with those words. Um, the set designer, makeup person, hair person, costume stylist, you know, the lighting guy, right? Like everybody's work is going into creating the performance, right? Whether it be it, be it on stage or be it on screen. I would argue that the CGI guy is that as well. And to what Mike was saying, you know, isn't isn't it just a you know no one's trained right now, you know, other than probably Andy Circus because he's done it so many times, but no one really has been going to acting school yet to learn how to do you know you know I'm going to take the 200 level course on how to interact with green screen dragons, right? Like that's not a thing that people are doing yet, but it well yeah. Actually, Mav, I'm sorry to cut you off, but yes, it is. Okay, good, because uh, that's what I was getting at. Yeah, we are teaching that, yeah. Because yeah, it, we are teaching Because it. my point was, at some point, that's going to become a part of the acting toolkit, right? Like, there was, there was a point when nobody was learning to act against puppets, and then it just became a thing in the, I don't know, 16th century or whatever, whenever, whenever that became popular, right? And then it also becomes a thing where, you know, the Muppets become important and, you know, people, you know, the technology changes and we sort of adjust what our, our, our sense of, of acting is. There was a point when nobody was acting for cameras because all theater was on a stage and then, you know, someone invented the movie. <laughs> so, so, so we, so, so I, I think that, I think that it will change because I agree it's different, but I mean, won't. Yeah. But I mean, but, um, so I, you know, I wanted to uh, to to go back, Mav, where you were uh, suggesting that um, Marone and I are on opposite sides of the of the coin. I actually think we're on the same side of two coins, as, as it were. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't, you know, I think we're actually very close mm-hmm. in the way that we approach this. But um, I know it would make better podcast if we were at each other's yeah. studios, so we could pretend. <laughs> <to be. laughs> I don't think your two percent increase goes too far <laughs> enough, or whatever. So, but um, but. You know, I really do think that um, I think it's I think we are in error if we think that the problems of digital technology are new in any um, in any way other than they're simply a question of 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 scope in this particular thing. I mean, our research seems to indicate that 
you know, when, when the first actor in front of the fire in the cave, right. The storyteller decided that he was going to, you know, add fire to the, to the performance in some way, or even before that, when he was going to figure out how to use gesture or, or vocabulary diction, uh, uh, voice work of whatever kind, you know, to, to delineate the difference between a person who is normally talking and acting and a person who is talking and acting in a way that represents a different action. That's all, those are all technological problems and they all get solved, right? They all, we all find, we find ways to integrate all of those things. Um, you know, when they first started to introduce electricity into the theaters in the 1880s, Doily Cart had to go out on stage and stomp on a, a footlight bulb to prove to people that it wouldn't blow up. You know? awesome. No, people were really scared. Because, no, they were coming from Gaslight. And the, the Savoy Theater was the first building ever to be entirely lit by electricity. Uh, so, you know, okay. the theater was right at the f- cutting edge, you know, and so, uh, so I, you know, we actually have adapted already. There are classes on how to work on green screen, um, uh, you know, just like there are classes for people That's who want exactly to do what for manga. Um, as far as I know, yeah. no one has, has yet been nominated for an Oscar, uh, for a best performance Oscar for a VL role yet. Um, like there's no, I don't believe there's ever been a best actor in a Disney animated cartoon um, or anything. I don't know if there have been any unseen actors nominated for Tony. I'm not sure, um, but it's probably rare. If it, if, if, if it ever has happened, it's weird, but there's, but that's still acting. Somebody who's doing, doing voiceover work is, you know, in traditional animation, absolutely an actor, right? Yeah. Um, I would absolutely. We're still talking about if you're talking about voice acting before television, there was the very right. long tradition of radio drama, which is being revived with podcasts. And something I want to talk about in terms of technologies and adaptations is we need to group theater and media together, technological media together, because we'll often find that anytime a media is profitable, actors will start applying or show folk in general will start applying their training to it and to best practices for it. So if something, if there is work to be done in voiceover, once people find, okay, this is how you teach it, this is how you do it, you'll start to find that proliferate. Some of the proliferation is going to be people looking for easy marks who are charlatans, but you will see valid training pop up around that. And one of the things we don't also see very often is learning where our, where our performers come from. So we don't know, like, you know, Brecht used to say that, you know, he wishes that we would know the background of every actor that, or the background of every actor the same way we'd know the background of every, you know, athlete. I think I'm misquoting Brecht, but it's along those lines. I have another, I have another theater scholar with me, so you can. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Let me just uh, look that up real quick. <laughs> Oh, yeah, but you don't see like you'll see in a performer's bio in a show. Okay, they went to the, you know someone went to Carnegie Mellon, someone went to you know NYU Tisch, wherever they went, and you'll kind of know. Oh, that's a famous mm-hmm. theater school I've heard of, but you won't know. Oh yes, they had a uh, twelve years of 
classical voice with this person and three years of Meisner with this other person and five years of this other acting technique that no normal person ever needs to hear about in this other context. They'll just kind of know the branding of schools, but you will definitely find training around these things. And I think getting away from the concept of awards, because I think awards are largely a symptom of the cultural awareness. It becomes, you know, going back to the original topic of who is the performer and separating performer and character and okay, who's, because if you talk about, you know, I try not to use too too much academic jargon for podcasts like this, but if we want to get into semiotics, you talk about, there's We all, we love our semiotics, but the actor is the media that, yes, the actor is mediating character. Yeah. And if you say, okay, the actor is mediating character. And if someone gets up and is, is all to be or not to be that person at that moment is mediating Hamlet oh, okay, or sorry. someone making fun of Hamlet. When it stops being just the actor and it starts being, okay, the CGI artist is taking old clips of Laurence Olivier and making mm-hmm. him do a speech from The Godfather. <laughs> I, would and then, I would watch that. <laughs> well, here, yeah, here's, right, here's why I have an interesting question uh, then. Okay, because this, this is exactly what I was, what I was going for. Um, and I'm going to point the stuff here because so I, I don't think you were one of the people calling for circus to because I'm going to get away from awards like Maroon said in a second, but you you didn't necessarily think that he deserved the Oscar for Planet of the Apes, but I know you loved him in that first movie. Well, see, I don't know exactly what happens. Okay, I know they have the like little sensors on like throughout his body, but mm-hmm. so it was really like the facial stuff in Planet of the Apes that mm-hmm. I thought was notable. Okay, perfect. And here's why I'm, why why I'm asking because exactly what you just said. You don't know exactly what happened, but you're not one of the two of them. So like when when so everything they just talked about was them analyzing the performance because they're theater nerds, right? And like that's what their job is, right? Hey. Hey. Uh, so <laughs> I'm the token non-theater nerd. No, right well, hey. I'm not either. But here's the thing. You, I, I, like, I know you love that movie. And I would imagine one of the reasons that you love that movie was because for two hours and 20 minutes, you were able to forget that it wasn't really a talking ape, right? Like you were able to yeah, get it was, lost Yeah, in it, it was and, really and convincing. You, yes. you believed in Caesar, right? Um, be that the power of Andy Serkis or, or, you know, Johnny the programmer at ILM, you know, or whoever, right? Mm-hmm. Someone made you believe. I don't know what the guy's name is, right? Because it's probably, but here's what I'm getting at. Like, probably a team Exactly. Mm-hmm. Creating the character of Caesar isn't just one guy. It's probably 200 guys. But honestly, creating Lawrence of Arabia probably is too. We just, we've just always privileged the guy who was really right there in, on screen in a way, you know, we've privileged the actor who, as you guys said, is not working alone. He's always been collaborating with other people. And here's where I think it gets weird because I want to move to another movie. I'm going to move to all the Marvel Guardians of the Galaxy movies and Avengers movies, the last couple of Avengers movies, which have Rocket Raccoon in them. Rocket Raccoon, whom we like to say is played by Bradley Cooper, except for I happen to know and now ignoring the fact that um, Rocket Raccoon. Okay, right, wait. Now these are. I think these are two very different things that you're comparing. Because like, right? well, here's the thing: Rocket Raccoon, the character, is played by Bradley Cooper, but not just no. the CGI team because he's because the acting, the on the on stage acting, like all the movement around, 
is done by Sean Gunn, who's also an actor, James Gunn's um, younger brother. Sean Gunn performs Rocket Raccoon, and then Bradley Cooper does the voiceover work. So who was the actor of Rocket Raccoon? Well, okay, so who was the actor of Darth Vader? It was exactly the same thing. Eddie Proud and the amazing Jim Jones. And I think that Darth Vader's not Darth Vader unless you have, I mean, like, it's, it's both of them working together, right? That voice is important, but James Earl Jones wasn't walking around on set. You know, the movement of of Darth Vader is is David Prowse, right? So, <laughs> so, so yeah, but I th- but I think uh, and I think this gets into what you were saying about you know we can talk about puppetry for a little bit. If it, classically we think of a puppet as one guy with his hand inside of one thing, but like most like there are lots of really complex puppets that take two, three, four performers. And I mean, long before the digital age of computers, you know, there are marionette shows where there's a couple guys pulling on strings or or three, or there's you know, like the Dark Crystal. If you watch, not even going on. Yeah, there's you know, the Dark Crystal stuff took you know some of those creatures take four um, four different people to operate. And I'd say they're all yeah, performers. I think you I think they're right. You can't yeah. really decompose what's going on into I was even thinking like if you for Darth Vader, for instance, if you replaced James Earl Jones's voice with someone else's voice, would ha- would it have the same effect? No, you I can mean, find online. You can find David Prowse's because David Prowse didn't know when he performed James uh, he was Darth Vader. Him. He thought that his voice was going to be in the movie and it would not right. work. <laughs> they made a they made a good call having hmm. okay. all respect to David Prowse, who I've met. They made a good call. Right. He was wrong. Oh, yeah. I guess that, yeah. <laughs> James Earl Jones was fantastic, you know. Right. Did he win any awards for that? Who? James Earl Jones for yeah. Darth Vader? No. No. Okay. But like but I think that's just I think a new place where science fiction and fantasy are in the public eye in ways that they haven't been in a very long right. time. Right. So but I don't think it's just awards. That, well, okay. So, the, but the, for the question of awards, right? I mean, I remember when um, uh, what's his name, Wolverine, um, Hugh Jackman. Jackman. Hugh Jackman hosted the Oscars one year, and uh, Hugh Jackman, of course, I don't know if people know this, but he has a huge background as a musical theater guy, yes. right? Yes. And so he did a musical theater opening number for the Oscars, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the things he complained about, or he said, you know, these are the these are the he, he did little things about the different nominees, right? But one of them was. Batman the Dark Knight. And he was like, that, you know, in his song, he's like, Batman the Dark Knight is not nominated for an Oscar, but I'm doing something for it anyway, because I think superhero movies should be nominated for Oscars. And of course, he had just done Wolverine, right? Right. right. The, the, the recognition uh, that the Academy Awards give, for instance, is um, not often conferred to certain genres, right? right? Cartoons you mentioned, superhero stuff, fantasy, science fiction, right? And and I actually feel like as a result of that, um, they have an opportunity to play in ways that, that they otherwise can't, right? They can do astonishing things. Because and can, because you can think yeah. of yourself as we're doing this for the people, and you can make you can yeah. make you can make bigger swings than you would necessarily if you're trying to win an Oscar for Bohemian Rhapsody, right? There's multiple aspects around that, though, because right now in the fight and stunt community, there's a big push to try to create an Oscar for stunts. Yes. And then there's a question of once you do that, which is absolute, I'm very much on the side that that absolutely should be done. Will we start seeing a change in how they're portrayed? What do you mean? Once it's something Oscar worthy. And how the stunts are portrayed? Oh, yeah. Because you'll start seeing, because mm-hmm. right now, a lot of very dedicated professionals and artists who are creating physical narratives. And we're in a cultural space in mm-hmm. the West where 
we're not allowed to say in the West anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the last part we can get in trouble. But we're in a cultural place in the United States where we're not privileging physical action. And a lot of the stuff we're talking about with these deep fakes, with these with these virtual performances is that we're creating physical characterizations. Uh, since it's going to be film or TV, it's mediated physical characterizations. And when you start talking about the programmer at ILL, one of the coolest things I've seen in terms of creating physical characterizations was on a special features of the Kung Fu Panda mm-hmm. DVD. They have a thing about the animations having to create new algorithms to portray those movements in their CGI. And, you know, Kung Fu Panda not winning any major awards, unfortunately, but realizing that we're rethinking or the industry is rethinking how physical movement is portrayed will change how people, if you start giving awards Mm -hmm. for that, you'll start seeing a change of focus on it. Yeah. And you'll start seeing as we don't. I think that's yeah. absolutely right. I'm a fight choreographer myself, not 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 as accomplished, I think, as Marone is. But I think that's absolutely true. I do want to say, though, for the record, that um, the visual effects team on uh, the Planet of the Apes series was Weta Digital. <laughs> oh, sorry, not Joe Letary and Dan Lemon. And <laughs> they were, in fact, uh, nominated for... Nomination for for best visual effects for War of the Planet of the Apes. I don't think they for War they were. Yeah, um, they didn't get nominated for Rise. They got nominated for War. They didn't win, did they? I don't think they won. Um, I think they got beat. I don't know if they won. I'm looking at a an article from March third, two thousand eighteen, uh, on yeah. digital trends by Rick Marshall called "How the War for the Planet of the Apes FX Team Created a Realistic Apes Army." Yeah, they they might have won for the third one. They might have won for the last one. I'm not sure. Lincoln in the chat. <laughs> so what I, I guess I, I must have missed something. But so how do you think the stunts would differ if there were an award for stunts? Would they just become kind of gratuitous and overdone and not really play into the plot? Or well, I think they would still I think we would get more attention given to them. So I think if anything, we start seeing people get the pay they deserve. But once once something is given an award and it gets a cultural recognition in that way, We'll start getting. I, I, we'll start getting more attention paid to it, and we start seeing. Okay, I think what we might start seeing is an escalation in stunt work in places where it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. belong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or one of the issues around a lot of fight choreography is that you know, in the ideal world, if I'm a choreographer in a show, no one should know when the director's work ended and when mine began and where it overlapped. Nor should you. And, nor should you know if you're a director, you shouldn't be able to tell. And if you're an actor in a film, I should not be able to tell when it stops being Chris Evans and starts being whoever his double is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, sh- I shouldn't know. But, but like, there's certain elements when you start. When if so, if you look at most professional fight choreographers' resumes, a third to a half is things that you wouldn't even think about mm-hmm. where it's like, Oh, what did you do for a delicate balance? A delicate balance is a play by Edward Albee that won a Pulitzer. Yes. It has a single slap at a very pivotal moment. Mm-hmm. And it's not a whole lot of choreography, but if you get that wrong, you ruin the show. Totally. Mm-hmm. totally. And somebody, gets, and someone gets, best case scenario, you ruin the show. Worst case scenario, someone gets hurt really bad. Yeah. 
But yeah. It, yeah. So maybe only <laughs> like fight choreographers should vote on <laughs> best. Well, it's that's work. Cool. They should. That's more. But I think like when you're going to start getting. Yeah. You're going to start getting focuses on, you know, maybe our, our fight's going to get bigger. Are you going to start realizing mm-hmm. less is more? Are you going to, some of the best moments in the John Wick films are the most subtle moments, mm-hmm. are when you see the character solve a problem in a way that you don't typically see. So I think we'll start seeing a lot of improvements, but I think we'll also perhaps start seeing someone make someone in the boardroom make a decision of we're going to go for the stunts Oscar on this. Right. They'll be Oscar. They'll be they'll be Oscar baiting for for stunt work, just like there is for yeah. for acting work, mm-hmm. which is which is unfortunate because it is one of the reasons it's harder to win um, an Oscar. Aside from the fact that people just don't like genre, um, or I should say, the Academy voters don't like genre, it's harder to win in a lot of ways because understated performances don't win Oscars. Um, you, you can uh, the way you win the Academy Award is for the most acting, <laughs> more, more so than the, more so. most acting goes yeah. to. I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, sometimes when a fight goes wrong, it can be really entertaining. Um, I'm reminded of a story of David Hyde Pierce was doing uh, Blythe Spirit on Broadway a few years ago, and um, they set up the set in the wrong order, and as a result, a a, a, a boom came. Raping through the set before the curtain raised and knocked all over all the furniture over. It was completely destroyed. <laughs> and they didn't know that. So they go out on stage and then the lights come up and there's David Hyde Pierce and his, whoever he was with. Uh, and they're standing in the middle of this total wreckage of the living room. And he just looks around and he says, well, that's the last time we invite the Rosenbergs over. <laughs> <laughs> It's awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you know, stuff like that. You know, are we going to start seeing awards for best use of best lemonade, as it mm-hmm. were? So to move, you know, sort of back you know, away from the award part and back into the idea of digital acting, I, I see complaints about it a lot, and, and part of it, part of the complaints, I don't think are necessarily from. And I'm trying to figure out without getting too academic to sort of different differentiate between being a dramaturge and just being an actor, right? Like there are, there's going to be purists who complain, well, this isn't real acting because back in my day, we didn't have the computer assisting our thing, you know, but again, yeah. you had makeup, right? <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and there's going to be, it's, just, it's the same thing. It's, um, it's the complaint that we see from musicians about auto tune, right? Um, there is there I've, I've watched, I have friends who are musicians who complain, well, that's, they're not a real singer. They've, they're using auto tune, so they don't really count. And okay, mm-hmm. sure. So do we take away the validity of every guitarist who's ever used an electric guitar? Because that's not how a guitar really sounds either, right? Like you, you know, you used you used technology yeah. to change the to change the sound of music. Well, I you think know. we start to talk about what's the totality of the work of art. Right. But something that I think I brought up when this topic first came up when it was when it was uh, online back and forth. Mm-hmm. It, back to puppetry, there was a guy in theater history called Edward Gordon Craig who wrote an essay about called the actor in the uber marionette and this is an essay that mike backed me up here has pissed off actors for eternity because it was basically a guy who was one of the founders of directing as we understand it today 
saying that he was sick of actors and wanted precision in his own composition of the work of art by having just these amazing puppets that could do anything he wanted. Mm -hmm. And I would tell the exact story I want to tell and present the exact theater I want to present with these, you know, magical puppets that one day will exist. Mm -hmm. And we talked about Lawrence of Arabia, where Lawrence of Arabia, we're seeing that actor be less mediated than we're seeing Gollum. Mm -hmm. But we're still seeing the director's vision in both Lawrence of Arabia and Gollum. We're just seeing different levels. And Gollum, we're seeing the electric guitar. In Lawrence Absolutely. of Arabia, we're seeing the agree more. I remember too. when I was a kid, and uh, you know, even then I started to develop these theatrical sensibilities, and there was a huge debate. I remember people saying like, well, I don't like Boy George. I don't like Prince. I like Bruce Springsteen because he's real. I'm like, what do you mean he's real? They say, well, like he's not wearing a costume. And I'm like, you think Bruce Springsteen isn't wearing a costume? Like, you think Bruce Springsteen just came by uh, after he finished his work at the, his shift at the steel mill and and you know, but that's what people think. They 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 think, and I think this is a huge uh, issue that has come up every time theater makes a uh, a big technological leap. There's always a group of critics who are very upset about it for, I think, for sometimes for very good reasons. But the reason that, oh, well, now it's mediated, and whereas before it was unmediated, that's simply not true. Anytime we interact as humans, we are in a situation where, as you well know, Mav, we've talked about it on the show before, we are mediated by issues of gender, issues of race, issues of class, right? That all of those things, they change the way that we interpret the signs that we generate, going back to semiotics, you know, um, uh, the signs that I generate um, as a, you know, off-white um, you know, mostly straight, uh, middle-aged guy who's also a professor, you know, that's, that's those, that mediates how I am seen in the world and how I move through the world and what kind of choices. I make. Mm-hmm. Well, there's that. And there's also, there's the performative aspect and, uh, there's a performative aspect that you're doing, particularly if you're Bruce Springsteen and your job is literally performing or you're an actor or anything, you know, but but just as a professor, as a as a working human being in society, you choose a certain stuff you can speak to. You choose a certain like way to present yourself because you're hoping to evoke, you know, as, as teachers, we're hoping to evoke yeah. a certain to be reaction. honest i'm not very good at that <laughs> <laughs> but, but but yeah but no no yeah. it kind of reminds me of um a psychology professor of mine who was talking about intelligence and how like a sign of intel like if you're playing words with friends with somebody <laughs> he argued that like if you you if you use like all the tools that are possibly available to you that's actually a sign of intelligence rather than cheating so that's kind of like it kind of reminds me of the situation that's going on here. I mean, if you're an intelligent musician, you want to use everything that's available to you to make your performance, you know, optimal. Mm-hmm. But it, but it's still a performance, right? Like is Bruce Springsteen, like you said, like Mike said, Bruce Springsteen didn't just work, just get off the steel mill. Bruce Springsteen, no, he not was a working class individual. No, no, he's been rich for a very, very yeah. long time. And, and he was like originally skinny, and then like his fans complained, "Oh, you need yeah. to beef up." And then he's been like super buff ever. talking about you know the village it takes to make something he didn't grow the trees that he carved his guitar out of right 
And he's mm-hmm. he's always Bruce Springsteen is a character performed by someone whose name also happens to be Bruce Springsteen in the same way that someone who more clearly did it for oh, years. Stephen Colbert. Oh, David Bowie. Sure. Oh, yeah, I think yeah. Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert. Played, yeah, he always referred to himself as the character being played by Stephen Colbert of Stephen Colbert. But at least on the, and he's still doing that. It's a different character, and it's probably closer to his real performance. But mm-hmm. the right. but on the Colbert yeah. Rapport, yeah. he was he was a character generated by a team of writers, a team of stylists. Exactly. So, so, so what we're I think all of this conversation comes back to a problem that we have about the way that we think, particularly in the West, if we can use that term, um, that we're we're very attracted to binaries when we think, right? And so we want to say, oh, the artificial versus the natural or the controlled versus the original, whatever it is, and they're not the same thing and they can't communicate, right? Um, you you brought up the idea, I mean, I, I, I'm very grateful to Maroon for bringing up um, uh, Gordon Craig, that asshole, because, um, <laughs> because the funny thing about, about puppetry is that I think puppeteers do not think of the situation as binary. Um, one of the things that we write about in our book is uh, the the writing of Zayami, uh, a very famous um, 15th century uh, uh, theater artist from Japan uh, who wrote a book called the uh, Kakyo, the mirror held up to the flower is what it's called. And he actually talks about puppets quite a bit in this. Um, and I've got a quote right here, which I would like to to recite. He says, the constructed puppet shows various aspects of himself, but cannot come to live of itself. It represents a deed performed by moving strings. At the moment when the strings are cut, the figure falls and crumbles. Saragaku, which is this new art form that he was creating, which we now call no, uh, too, is an art that makes use of just such an artifice. What supports these illusions and gives them life is the intensity of mind of the actor. So the, the notion, uh, and you were talking about Bunraku puppets, which require three um, artists to to do, mm-hmm. right? But the 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 image here is that Zayami seems to, he views the relationship between the puppet and the puppeteer um, as not as a metaphor to underscore some kind of putative divide between natural and artificial or human and inhuman, but instead a third thing that is created by the interaction between these two things, right? The, yes. the technical and the, and the organic. And it creates mm-hmm. the third thing. And it's not as if we're watching a puppet and going like, oh my God, uh, these these puppeteers are so good that I have forgotten that I'm watching a puppet, nor do we say, oh, my God, this I wish I could just watch this puppet without the actors in some way. Right. It's it's foolish. Well, I think there's some parallels to be made with musicians that you are not going to sit down and look at a guitar that Bruce Springsteen's not playing. <laughs> and like the same way Jim Hudson brings up, can bring, could have brought up any object in life as a puppet, a musician can bring an instrument to life. And mm-hmm. there's a skill in having whatever the performance instrument, the performance object is, whether it's a musical instrument, a puppet. Uh, I, in my experience, found a lot of parallels in working in puppetry and working in stage combat that, you know, making a sword perform versus making a puppet perform. Absolutely. Doesn't very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think one of the, I mean, you just brought up Jen Henson and that's one of the things that I, Mike, I actually brought this up during your, your talk at, at Pitt when yeah. you were out, when you were out here. Um, one of the mistakes I think people tend to make and, um, when they're looking at something like like Planet of the Apes, right? The the thing that people are keep saying is, well, you know, it's getting so real looking. I believed that 
I believe that that was a real monkey. And I even said it earlier on the show, but that's misleading because stuff, you didn't believe it was a real monkey because real monkeys don't talk. You believed in that, in that particular performance, you believed that it was a real talking monkey to the extent there that like, I almost saw it as human to be honest. Yes, yeah. And, and, and here, and here's where I'm getting at with it because I think that people, people keep saying stuff like, you know, we've come so long since Pixar first did Toy Story. Now everything looks real and it doesn't because the the power of the Muppets is not that they look real, right? Nobody looks at Kermit and thinks that's an actual frog. It doesn't even look like a frog. Wait, 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 what? <laughs> well, but, well, but I mean, he doesn't look like a regular frog, right? The power is that you believe in the artistic expression that is a Kermit the Frog as opposed to... You know, like you're not confusing him with a with a natural, you know, amphibian. You're 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 believing in that. Like what we're talking about is that we are getting an art. A team of artists has gotten us to successfully suspend disbelief to engage with an anthropomorphization of an abstraction of a frog. Right, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, that, and that's the magic of it, right? Like, yeah. it doesn't work if he looks like a regular frog. It looks no. it looks kind of off putting. When I was working with the roboticists at Carnegie Mellon, you know, they were like, well, we can make a robot look like whatever we want, but we don't want to make it look too human because mm-hmm. of this thing, you know, uncanny which I, had, right, the Uncanny Valley, which I had not heard of at the time, right? But then I was like, oh my God. And it's absolutely true, right? Um, uh, one of the reasons why Pixar made Toy Story with toys was because they wouldn't be uncanny, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for the most part, you don't see very many humans in that show. They do see a few. And, and, but they're a little cartoony, right? Because you don't want them to look too natural. Whereas, um, yeah, but I think that I'm glad Marone brought this up because it's, it's not about belief. It's about the suspension of disbelief, or maybe what we should say is some other way of being, of, of engaging with the art object and accepting its conventions as the reality necessary for this frame to emerge. It doesn't mean that we, that we think it's real. I mean, I think that if you, if you do actually think it's real, then you're having a psychotic break, right? But, but it, it seems like the, the, the apes and Planet of the Apes, that, it, it doesn't, that seems to be different to me. Okay. It, it just, it, it's not, it seems so, like, so real that it's past the uncanny valley and it's, you, you're not accepting that this is something different. It's, I don't know how they did it, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it just didn't feel like I, it, well, the uncanny it didn't seem like I was watching not, something. I should actually talk about that. So, when I posted, I say how they did it. Yeah, they put okay. little dots on their faces, right? Mm-hmm. They put little white dots on their faces, and then they they link the skins to those dots. Mm-hmm. And, and it must have been really like fine grain because yeah. it was very well, realistic. I, but I also want to point out that yeah. the Uncanny Valley is very specific, which is to say, there, there, the Uncanny Valley people only talk about it. Typically, when they're discussing it, they're talking about the left side of the Uncanny Valley slope, which is the more real it gets. There's a point where it becomes too real that um, that you it becomes uncanny. It becomes off putting. But it's not quite real. Right. right. (laughs) Right. But there's actually a rise on the other side of the valley as well. So like you can you can surpass the Uncanny Valley and get to a point theoretically, Mm -hmm. but you can get to a point where something is realistic enough to where it's not off-putting anymore. And then there's just things that live in the middle of the Uncanny Valley. So like, so Planet of the Apes is starting to be on the right side of the the dip. And climbing, climbing the the slope. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I agree. The new live-action Disney, like the new live-action Lion King, 
and they want right. to go live right. and Lady and the Tramp. Yeah, those become realistic. Oh. And then the weird stuff is stuff like Polar Express or yes. the yes. Beowulf that movie, yes. which like yeah, that was, that was freaky, right? Because they yeah. were trying to be realistic, but they weren't quite there yet. And it just mm-hmm. makes you go. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Freud said that the uncanny, and this is what they referred to when he was talking about the uncanny. This is an essay from his in 1919. He says the uncanny is a is a feeling that emerges when we cannot tell whether the thing we're looking at is alive or dead. Mm-hmm. So, so that's really specifically, is it, you know, is this a cartoon or is it a person? And if it's in the middle, or non-living, it causes- living or non-living. <laughs> right, right. Well, he, he so, didn't have as much to work with. <laughs> well, he was talking about like ETA Hoffman's uh, operas mm-hmm. where dolls come to life. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I was thinking like, you know, he was like, you know, if, if you were sitting in, you know, if a, if a child was sitting in a, in a room and a doll came to life, you know, as an adult, what would you do? You know, you <laughs> freak the fuck out. You don't want my kid. Land of toys and have fun. You are not taking my kid to the land of toys. Yeah. You know, before we wrap up, I want to touch a little bit on you know sort of the dark side, just because you know we 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 talked briefly about deep fakes because it's probably the most well known, easily accessible technology to do sort of these things. Like when you're when you're making. When you're making a Rogue One, ILM has their own version. But um, I've, but I've been fascinated by the idea of deep fakes. Mostly, if you look at the um, if you look at the news stories, you hear about the the very negative aspects. Um, and, and when I first talked about this, I think I, I think Stephanie, I, I think you you asked me if I what it even was. And for the people who don't know, deep fakes is a piece of software where if you have enough pictures of someone's face, you can map it onto video and make them appear to be performing whatever action and because it's the internet and because it's technology it's number one usage is obviously porn because of course it fucking is right like but that's what you're going to use it for because that's where that's where all technology gets um, spread and i and i showed stephanie um you know in the name of academic research um i actually went and showed her like yeah, that's right um uh well because the one that i heard did you get a grant for that god i wish i could get a grant to do stuff like that but um but you even uh, try Pride. No, where I teach, come on. (laughs) I would like like you to give me money to study virtual porn. Yes. (laughs) Well, no, but see, here's where, here's where I think it was interesting. So I I heard about it originally two or three years ago where I saw an article. It was a, a fake news article, but it was basically a very ultra conservative person complaining about the TV show Game of Thrones because we shouldn't be watching the TV show because not only is it awful and you know ungodly, but the actors are ungodly and they point it to they actually link to the pornographic videos of Maisie Williams who played Arya Stark and like how you know how she was obviously a woman of loose morale because she was a slut because she'd record herself having sex with somebody. And I was like, huh? So I clicked it thinking it would be like, you know, somebody, you know, I mean, at the time she was like 19 years old, you know, she was 18, 19 years old. And I was like, okay, did somebody hack her phone? And I figured there'd be an article there and it didn't go to an article. It went to a video of her having sex, a very well lit, <laughs> very well mic'd video of her, you know, it's like, this doesn't seem like a phone hack. This seems very, very professional and therefore it can't be her. So then I actually, that's when I first found out about it. It's like, oh, okay. So what somebody's done is someone has taken her face from lots of publicly available footage of her and used a computer mm-hmm. to just map her head 
onto some other random porn star in an actual random porn video. And it's extremely convincing looking um, if, if done well. For the most part, like there are websites out there. Normally I would link these in the show notes, but I'm not going to this time. You can find it yourself. <laughs> um, but anyway, they tend to be extremely convincing. Most of them actually acknowledge that they're fake. And I think I think because most of the time you'd go like any thinking person would be like, if she were doing porn, I'd know that. Right. Um, but I understand the issue. <laughs> well, no, I mean, like, it would, it would be a, too, where people are creepy. That's exactly what I was getting at because I've seen, because yeah. I saw, um, I, I've seen videos of people, um, um, our current president posted a video of Nancy Pelosi drunk and as as though he's like well look you know she shouldn't be able to do this and i was like well that's not real it's just that someone had slowed the audio down to make her talk like this but like people were convinced i mean yes i get that the president's an idiot but i've seen other people online convinced that uh, convinced that that was real i've seen people online convinced that obama said horrible things about being a secret muslim because of really bad editing tricks right so at what point does this become convincing enough that like this is a serious issue, right? Uh, I mean, I, I think it is. I think that there's already I, I heard an article recently on NPR about people who are you know dedicated to figuring out, you know, looking for the, um, the warning signs of fakes so as to protect our democracy. But, you know, but the truth is, is that I, I think, you know, this is the world we already live in it. Right. Um, it's happening. And sometimes we can use these technologies for good and make some really cool uh, uh, art out of it, right? That can be really provocative and exciting, like Grand Moff Tarkin, uh, as played by Peter Cushing, uh, kind of. Cushing. Yeah. <laughs> pretty cool. Pretty cool. You know, I mean, Tupac Shakur's still doing yeah. stuff, right? So why not, why not Peter Cushing? Um, and, you know, and, but people are going to use these technologies for evil too. You know, it's not, it's not a question of, of the technology itself being inherently good or bad. You know, it's like Shane, mm -hmm. right? Gun is only good or as bad as the man who uses it. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering. I'm not sure I believe guns, actually, now that I've actually said that, I'm not sure. I believe well, that about guns. Though, like at yeah. what point it goes back to the, it goes back to the original question. Cause I started out. The, this episode talking about, you know, who do we give the Oscar to when we get an Oscar worthy performance that is created by, you know, an editor and a visual effects team and one guy who's the voice actor and another guy who is the um, who is the motion capture artist. And, you know, so whole team creates the performance of Caesar or Rocket Raccoon who gets the Oscar. Right. But I, I think if you decide that that is that digital performance is a separate art style that becomes worthy of, you know, it's a special thing and it's not really Bradley Cooper being Rocket Raccoon. You're giving an award for the performance, not for the actor, right? Then what do you do? I think we need to reframe. So I did a, I did one of these 48 hour film festivals several years ago mm -hmm. and they had several awards. And the way a lot of these festivals work is you have your team and they pick categories and requirements out of a hat and pass them around. And sometimes when, like, sometimes they'll say one of your characters is this name and their characteristic is they have this one trait or this profession and then here's a line like an improv kind of thing they must say and mm -hmm. we had in our in my particular group's film 
we had the good fortune that two of our awards, one was Best Actress, which went to the actress who played the, the role that they had given out. And then as a team, we were given Best Use of Character. And the best character mm-hmm. went to both the actress who played the character okay. and the writing team. Well, that's what I was getting at because 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 now you're talking now you're talking about exactly what I'd like to see, right? Because I don't think that I don't think that Daniel Day Lewis is really Lincoln by himself, even without technology without technology as we think about it. Not digital technology. They they created that performance analog, right? It's all practical. So fine. But I wonder at, at the point in which you're recognizing a collaborative performance like that, which, you know, which could be back to. Right. But then when, when you're thinking about that and you're saying, you know, I mean, the idea of acting is it, it, as performance is you're creating a living fiction. Like that's the entire point. Right. Like it, it's not real. It's suspension of disbelief. You are creating a fictional reality. So what do you do in a, in a deep fake situation? For someone like Maisie Williams, right? Because uh, so the the gut reaction, because it's a deplorable thing, because oh my god, someone has against her will produced porn of this poor young uh, young lady at the time. I think she was like nineteen when when I was aware when I was aware of this. But you know, I don't think she's now. I think it must have been. No, she's like twenty two. Oh, no, like, I'm sorry, yeah. she's in her twenties. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so like if, um, but like at the time she was like she was like eighteen or nineteen, uh, and you know, for all I know, it's been out there since she was fifteen. I don't know. I, w- I was aware of it like three years ago, and she's like twenty two now, right? But like, at what point, you know, have you violated Maisie Williams by creating something well, like that? Well, yeah, we have, yeah. yes, because like I mean, something I would bring up. Is uh, so there's a concept in Judaism that slander and murder are equivalent because you destroy someone's place yeah. in in the society. Okay, and we want to yeah. you know take that further and anthropologically, you know, as higher primates, we're social primates and we're designed to mm-hmm. operate in groups. So if you destroy someone's ability to operate in the group, you know, on a on a animal level, you may be killing them eventually. Okay. So yeah. we're creating yeah. harmful fakes of existing people and we're hurting mm-hmm. them in their ability to function in society. This is obviously an evil act. And mm-hmm. okay, I buy that. Yep. Level, agree. Yeah. I agree. So here's my question. Ocean, but I mean, and furthermore, when you're talking about an actress. Mm-hmm. Or an actor, you know, what they have is their image, right? Yes. What they have is, is the image that they present to the world. That is what they, that's their commodity. That's what mm-hmm. they sell. So, you know, what, what was done here is a crime. There's laws about it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they're they're qu- actually, they're questionable. That's that sort of thing. I, um, I, I can link to it. It's not clear whether they broke a law or not. It is clear that they ethically violated her. Sure. Yeah. Marone's, Marone's right that whether they broke a, Particular law it was obviously mm-hmm. really indecent and immoral of them, you know. But you know, as uh, as Lucy Liu said in that um, when she was a guest star on Futurama, she said, you know, all I have is my image mm-hmm. that a the world's largest gold nugget a mile in diameter. Mm-hmm. So, but here's and here's my alternate question then, because it's very obvious to be upset for the violated person whose face was being used on this. But here's where I'm where I where I really question it. Some young woman worked really hard to produce a porn video that I don't know her name. I cannot recognize her 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 work. 
I don't, you know, like basically her performance was co-opted by slapping Maisie Williams' face on top of, on top of, I mean, and I get that some people might not respect the, we have the multiple, talent that it takes to... Multiple ethical crimes that work here, then. Right, that's exactly what I'm getting at. Like, like, uh, like you've essentially co-opted her performance and attributed it to another actor who had nothing to do with it against her right. will, and that becomes a weird and you know question. What? On top of that, other aspect of digital culture that comes into play here where... Um, I, I, I think it's probably the case. I don't know this particular case, but I think it's probably the case that whoever did the deep fake in the first place was presenting it to their friends or their community online with no attempt to, to suggest that it was actually Maisie Williams. Yes. But in fact, he wanted people to, to appreciate the, the value of his fakery. Yes. Right? And then the joke is on these, um, evangelists, these Televangelists, TV evangelists, so maybe <laughs> to um to thank you, thank you for laughing. Uh, to um that they believed it to be true, mm-hmm. and then and then even in a, a even more hideous uh, irony, they wind up linking directly to it in their complaint, right? right? So that more people can see, right. which reminds me a lot of the you know the ancient uh, anti theatrical um, statements by you know for instance in ancient Rome or Saint Augustine used to go on and on about how awful theater was. And it's one of our greatest sources of history because he really loved theater and he went to a lot of it and he knew a lot about it. And so when he was saying it's unchristian, he went into great detail, Mm -hmm. you know, about what was unchristian about it. And he's like, this is terrible. They pretend to be gods and they (laughs) they encourage licentious behavior. And then this one time, this one time I went and they had a whole mechanical elephant. It was so cool. And it was operated by different actors. And I, it was so cool. And it's very ungodly because only God, like completely different like if you guys know bojack horseman which i figure you do just because of shared taste i'm familiar with his work <laughs> the scene where he made a film that he didn't make mm-hmm. and they just cgi'd him in and he had to go to uh and he had to go promote a film that was deep faked of him mm-hmm. and that Oh, I want to see that. Well, yeah, I highly recommend BoJack Horseman. But, you know, this was a couple seasons ago, but he got this gig to be in a film that, or a character that he wanted to play his whole life. And then he went AWOL and they finished the film without him and they just edited him in as a deep fake. And then the film was mm-hmm. a success. Yeah. But we're close, and, and that's a cartoon, but we're close to being able to do that, right? Yeah. Like, again, Peter Cushing's been dead for like 20 years, but he was in a movie two years ago. I know, <laughs> uh, Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher is in a movie coming out um, in a few weeks now, because again, we are totally recording this at the end of November. Um, but, but, um, but, yeah, but I mean, look, Peter Cushing was not in that movie, right? Right. His likeness was used, mm-hmm. but the voice was by a, an impersonator, an actor. Digitally right? enhanced to and, sound like him, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so he was not in that movie. But Carrie right? Fisher knew she was filming Star Wars when she was filming it. They just had to, she just died before they, they finished everything. Right. So you could say, you know, I mean, like if they wanted to give Carrie Fisher a posthumous Oscar, Mm -hmm. I think that's totally legitimate, even though, you know, because I feel like, I mean, the problem is not um, the problem, I think, in in terms of like uh, how we're talking about acknowledgement is that we are still stuck in a very binary um, framework. And we have to, in the digital age, expand our understandings Mm -hmm. of how performance works and how culture works in in different ways. I'm wondering, though, once enough people die, so uh, or so once the technology gets good enough and and we're we're, we have 
reports, for instance, that um, that for future movies, Stan Lee and Robert Downey Jr. have both had, you know, Disney has scanned their faces to be used in certain things with, you know, with permission. There's lightness rights. I'm not even talking about the legal issue, right? At some point, it was like, what's the intellectual property of a deep fake? Right. At some point, technology gets good enough that why am I ever hiring you, either of you two or any other actor when I can just put, I don't know, name a big, you know, a big actor, Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant now star in every movie because I've got enough footage that I can literally put Audrey Hepburn in everything from now till the yeah, end of I'm time. excited for Bruce Lee, Marilyn Monroe crossovers. Right. <laughs> Hi, this is Mav talking to you from the future or... Well, your past as I recorded, but the future for me when we were recording that episode, but I guess it's my present right now. And I told you time travel in podcasting confuses me as much, if not more so than the idea of the digital fakes that we are discussing on this episode. Anyway, after we recorded that episode, you know, in my past, actually all of our past, a story broke that was about a movie coming out soon that is starring in scare quotes, James Dean in a digital performance where they have gotten permission from his estate to use his digital likeness as the star of this movie that is coming out in the future. So we didn't know about that at the time that we recorded this episode, but since it seems to be relevant to what we're discussing right now, I am going to link it in the show notes as well. But if you're wondering and you've heard about it and you are wondering why we don't address it, that's why. Okay, and now return you to the past or the present or I don't know, just listen to the rest of the episode. Enjoy. Bye. And, you know, but all I mean, but this is another this brings up an, the way that you frame it, Mav. It brings up another fallacy, which is that new kinds of art erase old kinds. Right. Yes. And that that's also that is discovered. That is not the case. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, people started complaining about the death of theater uh, when the first Olympics happened. <laughs> right. And they were like, oh, that's it. Now we have sports. No one's ever going to watch theater again. Mm-hmm. Right. And. You know, theater's been dying ever since. Well, multiple times because it also died from radio and from television and from movies. And yeah. that's right, and from movies and from and from uh, digital, you know, video games. No one's ever going to want to. As soon as the first video game came out, pong, they were like, "That's it. No one's ever going to go to the theater anymore." <laughs> well, but also the same thing happens now because you know, no one, no one's ever going to go to go out to movies because you know I've got a sixty-inch television in my living room and it's good enough, right? Well, what I think, yeah. That's a- and you know, the thing is, I love going to movies, right? I lo- I saw the Joker in in the theater, and I really wanted to, you know, and um, and I wanted to buy a, a tub of popcorn, like five cents of popcorn that I'm buying for ten dollars. <laughs> right? Like, I want to do that. I want to do well, it. So and then, I'm, then is that the answer? Then do we just have to is is it a remediation on every level? We're rethinking what the what the idea of going to the theater is because you know once upon a time the theater was way more popular than it is today because it was 800 years ago and there was nothing else to do except for you had you had, you had two choices of entertainment watch people act or watch lions eat people those were you know and they both happened in a building and you went there and that was entertainment right and now we moved on and we have movies and then we moved on and we have television and we've got an internet and each new thing has to change how we think about, you know, because people don't go to the theater as often as they probably once did. However, to pretend that Lin-Manuel Miranda isn't 
making a lot of money, you know, the dude's doing fine, right? Hamilton is doing great. <laughs> so I don't know that people are going to the theater that much less. I think they're just doing other stuff more because something right. that we have to think about about where we are in the here and now is that the amount, the, the broad spectrum of what's available to people is unlike any other time and place. And okay. one thing that a professor of mine said in grad school that was really enlightening to me was that, you know, we live in an age where if we want music, we are seconds away from it for virtually no work. Where mm-hmm. 150 years ago, if you wanted music, you either had to pay another human to do it or you had to make it yourself. Right. Or like there okay. may have been music boxes, but those would have been toys for the very wealthy. And those had like a song. Mm-hmm. Right. So we went from if you want music, you went you either made it yourself or got another human or group of humans to do it to we have a virtual library on our phones. And mm-hmm. the same with any other art form of if you wanted like the the village church might be the only place that someone would see a sculpture or a stained glass yeah. window. And you'd see seven or eight created images in your village that were the only images. Mm-hmm. They're now a magazine, which you know people argue is being outdated because we all have all of this yeah. media. A magazine a magazine has more images in it than a medieval person might see in their lives. Right. Yeah. Now does that mean that people aren't looking at sculpture? No. Yeah. They're looking at sculpture in the context of the millions of other images they might see in the day. So if we can rethink that, right. does that mean we have to rethink every, we have to rethink our very concept of what a performance is? No, well, you know, yes and no. It's not a question of rethinking this in a way that obviates or eliminates everything that's come before it. It's really more a question of expanding our notion of what culture is to encompass these new forms. It doesn't require us to, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to argue again, these are not really new problems, right? Digital technology does not present a set of problems that are completely different than any other form of uh, technological advancement we've ever had. It's just a, it's just a question of scale, right? Um, in in uh, the 16th century, um, the Spanish engineer Juanelo Turiano was commissioned by Philip II to make a clockwork monk. And so this is this, this little clockwork monk. You can wind it up. It still works, actually. They've got it at the uh, National Museum of American History. Uh, you wind it up and it, it goes around the table and prays for you, right? So now you don't have to pray anymore because now we have an automatic praying machine that'll do it for you. Um, <laughs> That was a great labor saving mm-hmm. device, you know, like, uh, but I mean, the, the other thing that we had, I think, you know, um, other thing is we have more leisure time than yeah. we did before as well. Right. Than we did in the period. And so, no, it's not, it's not a crisis. It's actually a, and just an expansion of what we have already done into new realms of, of possibility and imaginative storytelling and, and discovery. So we've resolved nothing. <laughs> as, as always. Resolve anything, yeah. you know, I mean, on no, show, we always right? resolve nothing on this show. That's how the show is. Yeah. It wouldn't be the show otherwise. This <laughs> when you invite actual intellectuals on the show. Uh, but I, I mean, I think it's a good conversation, though. And I think I think it's interesting. I think that what we've what we've resolved, if anything, is that they're not new problems. They're just the same problems that we've always had dressing up in different technological skin over and over again. 
Well, that's my theory, but I, you know, I, I don't know if that's true, but it's what we've argued okay. in our most recent book, me and Mike um, Self. And the book, by the way, is gee, I guess if, a, if you're going to do that, you know. So anyway, thank you, Mike. Where can people find you and find, hear more about your book? <laughs> hey, uh, so if you want to find me, you can go to the, um, the, the Theater Arts Department website at the University of California, Santa Cruz. There's a list of my stuff there. I'm working on a website, actually, just because I've been on this show like five times now, and I want to give a website so people can look to it. But I also want to tell everyone that um, if this show comes out before November 21st, uh, we're doing a Frankenstein convention here at UCSC. It's called FrankenCon. You can learn all about it at frankencon.com. I think that was too, that was last week, actually. <laughs> we'll see. Um, fantastic. It was so great. Wow. We had Ron, what about you? Uh, you can find out about me at my website, which is neronlangsner.com, N-E-R-O-N-L-A-N-G-S-N-E-R. Um, currently working on turning my dissertation into a monograph. My dissertation was on the representation of martial arts in the American stage. And I'm currently an audio podcast fellow through Stony Brook Southampton Arts. And I have a few potential projects in progress, and I'm hoping to have a podcast of my own coming out about this time next year. Hmm. And we will have you back on the show, I'm sure, when that happens. <laughs> or before then. Stephanie, you've got nothing to promote. No, I don't want to promote anything <laughs> at this time. <laughs> Maybe next time. Yeah, she can be on the show whenever she wants. But thank you for, you know, for, yeah. We might edit this later. <laughs> thank you for joining us. I'd like to thank all three of my guests for joining us. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris Maverick or on my blog at www.chrismaverick.com. You can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram or um, Facebook at Vox Podcast or on the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where we post notes about what our upcoming show topics are. If you enjoy the show, I hope you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And if you do, we'd appreciate it if you leave us a five-star review. That helps other people find the show, especially if you write us a little a little something-something and let us know how you're, um, what you enjoy about the show. We'll read it on the show. We will thank you profusely. I would... I want to say this is the best podcast on on the airwaves today <laughs> and uh, I, feel like, I feel like all three uh, of your fans <laughs> you, see we lose people every week but every time Mike comes on he says that and we lose I'm sure and I'm sure we're going to uh, lose no. people we're like oh well I guess it's only three people that's, it's better than that it's at least five well, if, if people would laugh at that joke, I'd stop telling it. <laughs> there, there you go. Um, anyway, <laughs> I would like to thank Maximilian yeah, okay. right, of Thought Form Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd like to thank you at home for listening, and we'll, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, it actually does seem appropriate for this episode for once. <laughs> Bye. Bye. now, Director Krennic, the Emperor will tolerate no further delay. You have made time an ally of the Rebellion. I suggest we solve both problems simultaneously with an immediate test of the weapon.